Good morning again. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad to be here. My wife and daughter uh, hopefully be back tomorrow sometime. They're in East Texas this morning. Haley wanted to go and see some some old friends before she started back to Harding just in a week or so, and Paula went with them, so they're worshiping there in East Texas this morning, and uh, hopefully be back tomorrow. I told you Wednesday night, it, uh, it's always fun for a day or so, and then it gets to be uh, gets to be lonely, and I remember that it's not good for man to be alone when it's, uh, when it's me and the house is all quiet. It was really weird because um, when, I, when I first pulled back home, they took Haley's car uh, because Haley was going to go off and, and see her friends and do things, you know, uh, by herself. And um, so she wanted to have her car, and Mama didn't want her to drive Mama's car. So they, uh, they took Haley's car. So when I, I got home on day one, and I opened the garage door, there was Paula's car. And I was like, what's going on here? And then, I, and then it dawned on me, oh, she's not here. And so then the house got really quiet and really empty. Um, so anyway, I look forward to them being back sometime tomorrow. Pray for them as they travel. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to hopefully finish up this chapter. I am loving uh, the, the letter to the Hebrews again. Uh, God is just um, showing me a lot of things that, that I've known, and he's brought a lot of new things back to my mind. We had just gotten into our, our text last week in chapter 2 first few verses, and let's just make our way through the text this morning. This is the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. This is what Ben just read to us. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. Uh, all through the beginning of this letter, um, the writer is, is showing us how much greater Jesus is than the angels. You remember the last two weeks I've told you that the book of Hebrews can be referred to as the book of better things or the book of superior things. Jesus is so much superior than the angels. The new covenant is so much better than the first covenant. So again, he continues with this idea that, that Jesus is so much higher than the angels. It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now see, this is, this is Psalm chapter 8. I told you that uh, the Hebrew writer has basically got four psalms that he builds uh, all of his argument around, the first of which now we're going to look at is Psalm chapter 8. And it uses this idea of a poetic, they call it poetic parallelism, when he says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you should even care for him? Man and son of man are the same thing. They're not two different things. They are, they're parallel they're one and the same, okay? He's reiterating uh, the idea. And so we have to think about 
you know, some maybe 3,000 years ago when, when David, a young shepherd boy, he's possibly got all of the sheep tended to. He's, he's fed them in green pastures and he's led them beside still waters. And now maybe it's evening and, and all of the sheep are resting. And then David just kicks back for maybe a moment. Um, the darkness has, has come over the face of the earth and he looks up and he sees these thousands of stars, literally, even more than that. And as he looks up and he gazes, his mind begins to think of how small he is, how seemingly insignificant he is in, in the cosmos. And he says, what is man? that you're even mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. It's as if David is feeling so insignificant. Would, would God even notice us? Would he even imagine us and take care of us? And the answer comes back, yes. Yes, he will. But in that moment, what is man that you even care for him? You see, Jesus often referred to himself, maybe one of his favorite uh, names for himself is was son of man. So when we read that, we almost automatically think, well, he's talking about Jesus, but that's not the case. It's just simply a poetic way of saying the same thing. Man and son of man are one and the same. Verse 7, he says, you made him a little lower than the angels, or you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Now, he, he's, he's, changed, he's changed subject matters here, right? No. When, when you read about um, making him a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, everything, under, uh, everything in subjection under his feet, who do you automatically think about? Think about Jesus, right? But that's not what he's saying. That's not what the psalmist is saying here. I went back and read in Genesis. When, you remember when God created man? He created all the beasts, the cattle, the birds, the fish, and all that. Do you remember what God told Adam to do? He said, you are to rule over the birds of the air, the beast." of the field, the cattle. You are to rule over everything. Everything is under your subjection. As the highest and the crowning achievement of my creation, mankind, you are made in my image. The only thing that was said to be made in God's image, and he put everything underneath man. Man was to rule over all of the creation. Are you with me? So the psalmist says about man, the son of man, mankind, you made him a little lower than the angels, or you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. We're made in the very image of God, created to rule, and you put everything under his feet. Now look at this. In putting everything under him, mankind, 
God left nothing that is not subject to him. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? That's a pretty incredible thought. That God has put everything under mankind and he's left nothing, nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So the unknown author here says God has put everything in subjection to mankind. He is to rule over everything. But yet when we look around us, is that the way it appears? Is that the way it appears to you that, that mankind is, is ruling and everything is, is, is going well and everything is under our subjection? Does it feel that way to you? Hmm? No? There are times when I not only, I, 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 I don't even feel like that I'm ruling, you know, the world. I don't even know if I've got a, a handle on my own scene, you know? I, I, I don't even know if I've got everything in my own household, you know, going well. Much less our community, much less our world or our universe. And that's what he says. That's what the writer says. God has put everything under subjection to mankind, but yet at the moment, it doesn't feel that way, does it? It doesn't seem that everything is under subjection to man. But I love this verse. I love what comes next. But we see Jesus. But we see Jesus. Is there now a man in the exalted place for which God actually created mankind? Is there, a, is there a man anywhere that exists right now that is in the exalted place for which God actually created mankind? Yes. The answer is yes. And his name is Jesus. He says we don't see, we don't see all of creation in subjection to mankind, but we see Jesus. But we see Jesus. Say that with me. But we see, uh-oh, got to wake up. It's time to wake up. Say it with me. But we see Jesus. That's what the unknown writer is saying to those who need encouragement they're, they're, they're being tempted. We've talked about this the last few weeks to go back to Judaism, either through persecution or, or just maybe just lack of commitment. They, they're, they're wanting to go back to their old former ways of life. And he says, we don't see everything the way God sees it. God has put everything. There's nothing left out of everything. God's put everything under mankind. But we don't see it happening that way. But we see Jesus. You have to look beyond this life, beyond this earth, to find the man who is everything that God wanted a man to be. A man that at every turn obeyed the Father. At every turn he kept the law. There was never a time 
that he didn't obey his father and, and do what his father wanted. And that man is Jesus. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Notice when, when it's said about man that mankind was made a little lower than the angels, for him, that's really showing how exalted man is. Because in the pecking order, with, with, with God and then these angelic beings, man was made just a little bit lower than the angels. See, that's, that's a kind of exalting man, if you will. But when it's said about Jesus, listen to me. When that is now said about Jesus, that is showing a demotion of the greatest magnitude. He was made a little lower than the angels. <laughs> we're, we're talking about God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It's that being that now for a little while is being made lower than the angels. It makes me think about Philippians chapter 2. It says that, that each of us should look not only to our own interest, but also to the interest of others. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but it says it made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You see how far he's come? This was no small thing. This was a huge demotion, if you will, for the Son of God. It was an exaltation to think about man being made a little lower than the angels, but, but not the Son, not the Son. Do we see any man anywhere at present who is exalted and crowned with glory and honor just like mankind was supposed to be. Well, we don't see it here on this earth, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus. And he's crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There is something, I believe, that has happened to the Son. He is our representative. We, we, we've got to understand that concept. It, it is so crucial to the understanding of the book of Hebrews and really to all of the Bible, all of the gospel. Jesus Christ is our representative. Would it be that, that you know, all of represent, representation here on this earth were as perfect and beautiful as what Jesus has done. When we think about a, a representative, we think about maybe an elected official who, is, who goes to, to Congress, he goes to Washington to represent us as, as you know, citizens of Indiana or citizens of Kentucky or, or wherever you may be from. And, and oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if they really represented us um, like they were supposed to? But there's flesh that gets in the way and there's, there's corruption. Jesus is our representative. He represented us here on this earth 
as a man. And now he's representing man in heaven before God. He is that representative. And because he tasted death, because he suffered and because he died, that which we just celebrated around the table this morning, because he did that, God has exalted him to the highest place. And I believe that the son enjoys a place of honor now that possibly he never did before. Why? Because he suffered death for us. Because he made purification for our sins. We read that in the very first chapter. Verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Why, why did he have to suffer? Why, why, why did he have to go through the pain? And I'm not just talking about the suffering on the cross. I'm talking about all of his life, the, the, the struggling with temptation, the resisting at, at, at all times. It says that God should make the author of their, their salvation perfect through suffering. How often do we, do we really learn uh, life's great lessons when everything is going our way? When, when everything is, is just beautiful, when everything is just handed to us, we never had to work for it, everything was just given to us. How often do we honestly learn? I mean, most of us kind of in the back of our mind think, well, wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> wouldn't it be great if everything was just handed to me, I didn't have to do much? I spent almost four hours yesterday mowing my grass, and then raking and bagging, and then weed-eating, and then edging, and then blowing off. And then I, I thought, well, now I need to go out in the street because I don't want to look like one of those guys that blows everything in the street, you know, and there's grass everywhere. So I'm, out, I'm literally out raking the, the, the road so that I don't look like that guy, you know? Man, I... I got in last night, and, and I just wanted to sit down, but I was so nasty and sweaty, I couldn't even sit down and rest, so I just had to immediately get into the, to the shower just so I could have a, you know, finally get dressed and have a place to sit. And the thought did kind of cross my mind. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody else was doing this for me for free? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? You know? I'm not going to say I learned a lot of lessons yesterday and that I'm a better person for it or anything like that. But honestly, when you think about it, when we suffer, when we, when we go through something difficult, and I'm not talking about suffering as a thief or a murderer or, or, or doing something wrong. When we suffer that way, we deserve that, right? But when we just suffer in life, either through temptation or not just temptation, but just physical things, pain. we got so many in our body that are struggling with their health. When we, when we struggle, when we suffer, sometimes it drives us to our knees. 
We spend more time in prayer. We become more like Christ because of the suffering. We actually get to share in his suffering. And God in his wisdom saw that, that Christ had to be made perfect as a man through the things that he suffered. It just doesn't make sense to me at times. We'll, we'll read later in, in, in Hebrews chapter 5 that although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. He learned obedience, the son of God. You see, we have to understand that Jesus when he took on flesh, he was a man in every sense of the word. That's why he knows what we're going through. And this, when I began to ponder this several years ago, and I began to, to talk about this and share this with certain people, it sounded to them like it was sacrilegious. And I think I've shared it with you before. If Jesus left heaven and he became a man and he grew up among us, if temptation came his way and yet he lived in some sort of bubble where he was impervious to sin, where it didn't really bother him, it, 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 there was no temptation because he was God in the flesh, if that's true, then he really doesn't know what I'm going through. He really doesn't understand where I've been. Now, I've said that, and I've asked people that I know and that I love, when Jesus w was here on the earth as a man, could he have sinned? The answer quickly comes back to me, no, absolutely not. He was God in the flesh, could not have sinned. Brothers and sisters, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. If Jesus could not have sinned, then he does not know what I'm going through. And this is, this is what makes me love him even more. Listen to me. Not just the fact that he suffered and died, but the fact that every time he was tempted, he said no. He said no. I can't sin against my God. I will not do that. Because if I, if I do that, then I cannot be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So every time he was tempted, he had to struggle with sin. Just the fact that, that you're tempted means there has to be some tug on you, doesn't it? If there's no tug on you, then you're not really tempted. Are you with me? And so I believe with every fiber of my being that when Jesus clothed himself in flesh, he was flesh. You say, well, wasn't he still God? Yes. He never, he never gave up his deity. Can I fully explain that to you this morning? No, I can't. I don't know. I, I, Steve, I don't know. Fully God, fully man. I can't wrap my mind around it. 
but I believe it and I trust it. And it makes me love him even more that at every temptation, he said, no, I will honor my God because I want to save these people from their sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And if I'm wrong, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. There are no cousins. There are no aunts and uncles in the family. Because those of us who have faith in God, God is our father. So God is our father. God is Jesus' father. So guess what? We're all brothers. We're all sisters. That's what makes us kinfolk. We're all, we all have the same father. So no brothers, I mean, no cousins in heaven, just brothers, just sisters. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. This is Psalm 22. Now, if you go back to Psalm 22, let, let's look at this real, real quickly. I got a little bit more time to preach this morning, and I'm excited about that. Psalm 22. Here, beginning in verse 22, this is, this is what the Hebrew writer is quoting from. Psalm 22, 22. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. So, the psalmist, this is, this is David. The psalmist here is saying that he will... He will declare their praises in the congregation and he will call them brothers. How does Psalm 22 start? Look at it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This feeling of separation that David has from his God. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. For 21 verses, the psalmist is crying out, is pleading with God because he feels forsaken by God. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And then all of a sudden, verse 22, the pleading and the prayers all of a sudden change to praise. Jesus quotes the beginning of this psalm as he's hanging on the tree. You remember? He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That would have been a very common rabbinical teaching tool. Any rabbi worth his salt could throw out the beginning of a of a phrase like that, and it would recall to mind, to the hearers, 
the rest of that psalm. When I was traveling in, um, with acapella, we used to have a scripture memorization I've, I've told you about, and we would memorize scripture. I'm preaching out of a, a, a Bible that I got in 1986 because I memorized a hundred passages of scripture and, and some other stuff. And we had to quote that verbatim. So what I did was when, we, when I would memorize the scripture in the back of my little Bible, I would write the first little phrase, the first two or three words. And, and if I got started, boom, the rest of it would just flow. So I would, you know, I would do that. If I said to you, for God so loved the world, boom, you would automatically know John 3.16 that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what I believe Jesus did on the cross. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, he feels that separation as a man, physical, pain, suffering. But to anyone who knew what was happening, it would recall to mind Psalm 22, that it doesn't end there, that that's not the end of the story. Yes, I feel forsaken. I'm crying out to you, but midway through the psalm, he says, but I will praise you. I will, I will call you my brothers in the midst of the congregation. So I think Jesus on the cross... As a man, I think he felt that separation, but more than that, he knew, that he knew what was going to happen. It was Friday, but guess what? Sunday was coming, right? Sunday was coming. Let's read on. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. See, Jesus is identifying again with us as brothers. He's our representative. He's one of us. So he's, he's got to be dependent on the Father just as we are. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. That's a quote from Isaiah. And it's really a longer quote, and it goes into all the names of Isaiah's children and, and what they mean and, and so forth. And so the Hebrew writer um, is, he's sort of taking it out of context a little bit to make a point. Uh, and, and sometimes we, we do that, don't we? we? We look to the scripture and we'll say something to make a point. That's kind of what he's doing here. So we're, we're in good company uh, when we do that. But Jesus' personal inheritance and his reward for his faithful obedience unto death is that God is giving those who put their faith and their trust in him, God is giving them to us to him, in essence. We become Jesus' personal inheritance. And surely that's got to be part of the joy that was set before him that I think we'll read later in chapter 12 in, in Hebrews it says that for the joy that was set before him, he was able to endure the cross. Surely that's part of it, that God has given all of us who by faith have put our trust in him. Oh, we got to go. We got to go. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, 
he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. All of our lives we've been afraid. All peoples of all time have been afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of dying. You know, every year when they do... Um, these polls, and they ask people, what are your greatest fears? What are, what are, what are the, the ten greatest fears or your five greatest fears? Number one, the fear of death. The fear of death. And even as Christians, even for those of us who know that we shouldn't fear death, there, there's still that fear of the unknown. I've never been through it. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be like. What happens that moment you breathe your last? What's that next moment like? We don't know. There's a lot of unknown things. So even those of us who are in Christ, there's still a fear factor there. Number one, people say they have a fear of death. Number two, the fear of public speaking. People would rather die than have to get up and speak in front of people. Satan has... Satan has used that fear like a club. He hangs it over our heads and, and he, he, he uses it as a club. Our, all of our lives we've been afraid, a fear of death. But listen, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, right? Jesus had no sin. Follow me here. Jesus had no sin, yet he died 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus had no sin. See, when you and I die, it's because we've had sin. Sin brings about death. And death comes to all because all have sinned. But when Jesus went into the realm of death and Hades. He did not go there as a victim or as a captive. He went there as an invader and a destroyer. Come on, y'all. He wasn't a captive. He wasn't a victim. He went there to destroy death. Now look with me in Revelation. I got to show you this. Revelation chapter 1. I'm starting to get excited. Revelation chapter 1. John the Revelator is, is writing down some things that, that he saw in a vision. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Look at this. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus goes into the realm of death and Hades, and he steals the keys. 
and he exits out on the other side on the first day of the week when he came out of the grave. He was not a victim. In fact, he said, nobody can take my life. I lay it down freely. So Jesus went to the realm of death and Hades as an invader and a destroyer. And he took the keys and he now has dominion and authority over it. It was the ultimate cosmic nanny nanny boo boo. Don't say that. <laughs> Yesterday, I had way too much time on my hands. After I got through mowing, I, I sat down, I was just reading and I was praying. And the thought came to me when I went to Revelation and Jesus said, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I have, I hold the keys of death and Hades. I do. Not Satan any longer. I hold the keys. I just kept, those, those two words repeated, came over, back over my mind time and time again, and I just thought, has any preacher ever said nanny nanny boo boo from the pulpit? I don't know if you have. And I tried to look it up in the Greek, and I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't find it in the Hebrew or the Greek. But that's what kept resonating with me. I'm going to say it one more time. Nanny nanny boo boo. Now, parents, if you have to undo some things this afternoon, I'm sorry. But Jesus went to that realm, and he came out a victor, and he is alive. Let's finish up the chapter. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. We're not Jewish but for those of us who by faith have put our trust in Jesus, we are grafted in. We are now Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement or propitiation for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, Jesus suffered when he was tempted. There was a pull on him. There was a, a tug on him to do that which was wrong, but he never did. At every turn, he said no to sin so that he could become a faithful high priest who knows what it's like to be human because he was human. To know what it's like to suffer when you're tempted because he was, he suffered when he was tempted. But yet he had no sin. Thank you, Jesus. Oh my goodness. There's so much that the Hebrew writer is teaching me and it always comes back to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him.